Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 72, Drag Me to Hell. Well, it's been well over a month since the last episode of the podcast, and I apologize to all of you who've been waiting with bated breath, if any of you have been so waiting. Uh, I apologize that it's taken so long. I also apologize to, you, to those of you who may be disappointed to find out that uh, after so long a wait, uh, following several episodes discussing hell and annihilationism, that I would return from a break to just continue to talk about hell and annihilationism. Before you turn this episode off and before you unsubscribe because you're sick of the topic, I just want to promise you that this is the last treatment of of the topic that I'll be doing on my podcast for the foreseeable future. Uh, I've got a lot of um, interesting topics, I think, prepared for the near future. Uh, In about a week, I'm going to be discussing Young Earth creationism with a couple of uh, listeners. Um, At the end of February, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Ken Gentry, who's a... uh, pretty well-known preterist like myself, a orthodox preterist, otherwise known as, unfortunately known as partial preterist. Uh, but we'll be talking about um, his book, uh, one of his books on the book of Revelation. Um, I've also got a couple of debates planned for the March time frame, one, uh, one between um, an Eastern Orthodox Reverend Laurent Cleanwork and uh, uh, Jamin Hubner from Real Apologetics on the topic of infant baptism, and a second one in that same month, once again with that Eastern Orthodox Reverend Laurent Cleanwork, and Rob Bowman from the Institute uh, for Religious Research on the topic of Sola Scriptura. I've also got uh, confirmation from my, the representative that I contact the representative of uh, Answers in Genesis, that Dr. Georgia Perdom has agreed to come on my show to discuss, um, uh, you know, her her perspective on young earth creationism from uh, from her being a biologist. Uh, I've got uh, somebody named Philip B. Payne, who's an egalitarian. He's going to be coming on to offer the opposite point of view from Matt Slick, who I had on to discuss women in ministry. Um, and uh, Sam Shamoon has agreed to come on the show to talk about uh, whether or not the Quran is of divine origin and whether or not Muhammad is a false prophet in light of some discussions I've been having as of late with a Baha'i co-worker. Um, Baha'is, I've discovered, believe that both the Quran and the Bible, among other works, are of divine origin. And uh, <clears throat> So anyway, I'm just saying there's a lot of topics I've got coming up in the near future, and so I hope that you'll forgive me this one last foray into this dark and morbid topic and controversial one at that. But I think it's important, as I think that there were some issues not fully addressed in uh, my debate with Hiram Diaz and Ronnie's uh, debate with Turret and Fan. And so Ronnie and another listener, whom I'll introduce uh, in the interview proper, uh, will join me today to sort of informally, um, without a lot of pre-prepared material or anything, we're just going to discuss those debates and the conversations that happened uh, afterwards. So I hope that we'll be able to um, address some of those points in more detail um, as as we had time in the debates to actually do, and, and also address some of the arguments that have been made since. Just as one final word of warning before we uh, get into the promo and jump into the episode, I do want to let you know that uh, <laughs> that my guests today uh, and myself were able to go on for a long time um, 
you know, we talked for something like four hours, most of which is going to appear in the episodes. Uh, so this is actually going to be the first three-part um, discussion, the, the first uh, interview that's split into three episodes. Um, so there's a lot to listen to, but I hope that you'll give it all a careful ear um, and consider it with an open mind. And yeah, I guess uh, that's all I have to say. Let me go ahead and play today's promo. This time, the next promo in the rotation is for my friend Phil Nason's What Color Is the Sky in Their World podcast. Hi, this is Phil Nason's from the blog and the podcast, What Color Is the Sky in Their World, formerly known as the Theology Today blog and podcast. It's a blog and podcast dealing with and examining issues that affect each and every one of us from a Christian perspective. You can find us at phillyflash.wordpress.com or at theologytoday.podbean.com. Thanks a lot. Now, I do want to make one slight correction in that promo that I received uh, uh, some time ago. The URL to the podcast was, as he mentioned at the end of the promo there, Theology Today. Uh, that has since moved to a different location. I've got the link in the show notes, but in case you don't check the show notes out, you should instead go to whatcolor.wordpress.com to get to the What Color Is The Sky In Their World podcast. Uh, and I'll make sure that I... Um, Go back and check my email to see if he sent me an up-to-date uh, promo. But definitely check out Phil Nason's show. I love the guy. I love the, sh- the shows the, um, that he's done. My friend D.D. Warren recently appeared on the show to talk about uh, uh, preteristic eschatology. Um, he's done some great shows on Calvinism and, and on a host of other topics. So I definitely recommend you check it out. Again, it's the What Color is the Sky in Their World podcast and blog at phillyflash.wordpress.com and whatcolor.wordpress.com. And with that, let's go ahead and jump right into today's episode. Tonight I'm joined by a couple of guests to talk about uh, annihilationism or conditional immortality. Uh, Listeners, if you're sick of the topic because we've been addressing it a lot, just bear with us one last time. I think that we've got some some important arguments to address uh, since the debates have happened. And to join me to do that is, first of all, uh, Ronnie Demler. Ronnie uh, argued against Turton Fan in a debate a couple of months ago on my show. Um, where he represented conditional immortality against hurt and fans' traditionalism. Uh, Ronnie, thank you for joining me tonight. Thanks, Chris. Also joining me is somebody who you might not have heard of, but you probably should have, and we'll talk about why in a few minutes, uh, is Joseph Deer. Uh, J- Joe, do you prefer Joseph or Joey? What should, what should I be calling you? Uh, friend, you, know, you can call me Joey. Friends call me Joey. Uh, Joseph's more my work, you know, the mean formal, uh, you know, on my license name. Okay. Uh, Ronnie, really quick, we're going to dive right into the topic, uh, the, the discussion, because we've got a lot that we've got to go over. So I'm not going to spend too much time in introductions. But Ronnie, really quick, can you go ahead and give our listeners the link uh, to the location of your blog so they can go and check out some of the resources that you've provided? Sure. It's conditionalism.net forward slash blog. And uh, it's been a little while since I updated that, but I plan to be doing uh, more updates in the near future. Well, you're going to school right now, so are you sure you're going to be able to have time to do that? I say I will have time to do it, but I probably <laughs> won't. So, 
Okay, fair enough. And uh, and Joey, um, the reason I say that my listeners probably should have heard about you is because uh, you become infamous, at least amongst uh, between Ronnie and I, for having a, a tome, um, <laughs> a tome about the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, first of all, tell us where your home on the internet can be found in case people want to check out some of what you've written. Well, sure. You can find me at three hyphen uh, ringbinder. It's all one word. Dot weebly dot com. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but I'll say it again. It's three hyphen ringbinder dot weebly dot com. And how do you spell Weebly? Oh, uh, W E E B L Y. Okay. And what is the tome that uh, Ronnie and I jokingly uh, talk about? Well, it's called the Bible teaches annihilationism. It's you know very straightforward title. It's basically a length. It was started out as a lengthy paper I wrote just for the you know heck of it. About the topic, trying to um, – it was actually originally a supplement for some of my friends to Glenn Peoples' podcast on the topic because I wanted them to hear it. I wanted to add some of my input, and it ended up being just a very lengthy uh, essay that uh, I wrote and I hope makes the case well that the Bible teaches annihilationism. I think it does. Do you have any plans to seek to have it published or anything like that? Probably in some sense. I mean, it's one of those things I would ideally like to be able to, you know, control the rights of and keep on the internet for free. Um, yeah, I, I periodically update it with little bits here and there, but um, it, that would be great in the future. You know, just have a way to get it out to more people because I, I think I make a good case and address a lot of the concerns people have. I think you do as well, if not in a lengthy fashion. <laughs> um, it's very long, yeah. No, it's it's a great read, though. Um, you know, I definitely recommend both uh, the Bible teaches annihilationism as well as uh, as Ronnie's blog. So I hope that our listeners will check that out. Now we're going to dive right into uh, the discussion today, and what we're going to focus on are uh, the two debates that Ronnie and I had: Ronnie against Hurt and Fan, myself against Hiram Diaz, and then some of the post-debate conversations that have been had. And I first want to just kind of, in general terms, talk about uh, first of all the debate between Turret and Fan and Ronnie. Um, let's start with you, Joey. Do you have any overall thoughts, anything that really stood out to you in, in the debate between Turret and Fan and Ronnie a couple months back? I think a lot of what stood out to me was sort of the almost circular sort of attitude with reasoning behind the arguments Turret and Fan made, uh, largely that the Bible teaches you know immortality of everybody. Why? Because we know that it's true. So what is read should be construed that way, as opposed to finding the text and showing that the text teaches that that's true. Hmm. How about you, Ronnie? What what's, what stands out to you? What overall thoughts do you have about your debate? Uh, well, you know, overall, I I enjoyed the debate. I thought Turton Fan was very cordial, very polite. Um, which is not necessarily the impression I've, I've gotten from him through reading his blog. He seems a little more aggressive, let's put it that way, in his writing. So maybe that's a uh, pattern because some people have accused me of maybe being a little too aggressive uh, <laughs> in my uh, online discussions. So hopefully uh, people thought that the debate was, was very cordial. Uh, in terms of the material, things that stuck out to me, uh, you know, First and foremost, I was disappointed that I didn't get a chance to respond to the two passages in Revelation because uh, he unfortunately only mentioned those in his uh, in his conclusion. I had a feeling, based on his debate on universalism, that he wouldn't come in all that prepared, and I was a little ambivalent about that. Um, 
because I know that he's done a number of formal, you know, moderated debates in the past. And I've never done anything like that. And I have done very little public speaking. So I knew he'd have an advantage over me in that area. So uh, uh, I didn't want to necessarily be too prepared. <laughs> sure. But um, yeah, there were a number of arguments I made that I, I could tell he, he really was just not prepared for at all, uh, which pro you know, probably didn't make for a great debate when it came to those areas. Yeah, I understand. You know, it's funny. Um, I agree with you, by the way. He didn't seem very well prepared. Like, like you said, he was cordial. The, the, what I found surprising is that in, in discussions since the debate, um, much to my surprise, actually, uh, there there have been some people, one in particular, who did seem to think that during the debate you were very condescending and, and arrogant. Have, have you heard that from anybody who listened to that debate besides the person we're talking about? No, I, I, I haven't heard that from anybody. And so I was actually surprised when I when I read that. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was cordial. Uh, any of Turret and Phantom Mind's uh, communication afterwards has been very cordial. So uh, I'm not sh exactly sure where that came from. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll leave the listener up. Uh, I'll let the listener decide what what they think. I, I do have one specific question about the debate, though, before we move on, uh, and. Uh, it's sort of a twofold question. You know, the, your very first argument in, in your opening uh, opening argument was that there isn't a single verse in, in the Bible in which it's explicitly said that any human being uh, will be eternally tormented. Now, the, the two the two part question I have for you is: first of all, what what do you hope um, to illustrate, or what what is it that you hope to to uh, to to um, Get in the listener's mind by saying that. What's your, what's your, what, what do you hope to get out of that argument? And then, second of all, do you think that it was tactically wise, given, um, you know, what, how Turton Fine responded to that during the debate and in the, some of the conversations since? I've thought a little bit about that. Um, I, I don't regret it. Um, it was. I, I go back and forth. I mean, the reason I said that is because. I know that when you challenge a a belief that has been held for a very long time by most Christians, you know the vast majority of people that listen, or at least a lot of people that listen, um, they're going to have some sort of a, a wall up or a shield up. And in my own conversations, you know, with friends and family and so forth, I've tried to find ways to maybe be provocative. Uh, to get, you know, I, I want to say something that will get them to think like, oh, wow, I never realized that. That's an interesting point. Now, of mm -hmm. course, that could backfire. You know, maybe you could be too provocative and then people, you know, think that you're just being ridiculous. Um, and I've had both responses. But, um, you know, my own conversations with friends and so forth, I will make that claim. I'll say you know, there's no explicit mention of the everlasting torment of human beings. And I challenge them to prove me wrong, you know study it for yourself and come back to me and prove me wrong and they never can and so a lot of times that's an eye-opener for them because mm. a lot of people just assume a lot of people have never studied it and they just assume that they could open it and they're going to easily find you know 5 10 15 20 verses or passages <laughs> that just explicitly say that and the fact is that never you know you never see that and again the closest we see to that are, are found in revelation uh, you know just two verses in revelation so uh, you know, I understand that me being a little provocative that way may be a stumbling block to some people, and I hope it wasn't to too many people. Um, but anyway, that's all I have to say about that. 
Okay, Forrest. Uh, now, Joey, let, let's come back to you and, and start to talk about my debate. Um, you know, I don't want – I don't at all want to um, have, you know, smoke blown up my rear end or anything. But I mean just but, – but in general, what are your thoughts on the debate that I had? Do you think – what do you think went well? What do you think maybe didn't go so well? You know, it was – a lot of debates I had listened to on the topic before. Um, I mean, I thought you did a quite a fine job um, presenting the biblical case for annihilationism. Uh, in, in Hiram's case, I, I almost got the feeling it was more of a debate against you than proving the case for traditionalism. Uh, there wasn't really wasn't a lot of scripture involved, less so than in uh, other debates, and. Um, just in general, I thought it was tended to be more philosophical and uh, you know more human driven in the reasoning. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I was a little taken aback as well by what seemed to me anyway. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, say that you know I've got that I'm seeing things correctly. Perhaps I'm not, but I really definitely got the impression that there wasn't a lot of scripture appealed to. It was, uh, and in fact, it, it was. From what I recall, very few texts that actually talk about what's going to happen to the wicked. It, ha it had more to do with extrapolations from other texts, or, or at least so it seemed to me. What about you, Ronnie? What were, what were your just overall thoughts on, on the debate that I had with Hiram? Uh, well, you know, between the two of you, you were obviously a, a lot more prepared. Um, you know, it was, I think, apparent to everyone that Hiram was very nervous. And I can relate to that. You know, I was very nervous in my own debate. I'm sure you were nervous as well, but I yeah. think it showed a lot more with Hiram, which is and that's fine. It's understandable. Uh, there's some things that I, I don't think were understandable. Um, for instance, his his opening. I, I you know I, I believe I timed it before, and I think it only lasted or ran for around 12 minutes. I think two of those minutes were actually not even argumentation. He was just you know he thanked people and he. He kind of gave a, a mini testimony. And so I believe this, his actual argumentation only lasted for probably 10 minutes out of mm -hmm. an allotted 20. So, I mean, there's just no excuse for that, I mean, because that could be prepared in advance. Um, and then his, in his rebuttal, in his you know first rebuttal, he didn't really respond to your arguments. He, he really just used the opportunity to make new arguments. Um, but he didn't actually specifically address, I think, any of your major points that you made. And... Um, so, I mean, in in general, that's what I thought. Yeah. I, w I was, um, I I was a little disappointed with with some of the things he said afterwards. Uh, he, at one point, he said something along the lines of, um, that you had some debating tactics tactics that he didn't agree with, and and um, he he wasn't expecting that you'd go in trying to win the debate, and and I, I didn't really understand where he was coming from there. Well, you know, I, I think that what happened was when I originally reached out to Michael Burgos, um, you know, my friend, at least I hope he considers me one after all that's happened. Um, you know, I reached out to him asking if he'd like to do the debate uh, as a favor to me because I wanted to uh, get my feet wet. And it seemed to me at the time that the case for annihilationism was very strong. And, and at the time, I was largely convinced, but not entirely so. And so I, I pitched it as an opportunity to help me, you know, come down off the fence. Well, by the time he suggested that Hiram take his place since he also wanted to get some debate experience. Um, you know, I, what I think what had happened is it had been expressed to Hiram that this was in part 
my effort to figure out where I stand on this issue. But in an email that I had sent to him, I did say I was nearly 100% convinced at the time. And so um, I, 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 like you, I was a little surprised that he didn't think that I was going to go in to try to win. As, as far as the tactics that you're referring to, he did say in, in, in a Facebook thread that, uh, that there were some tactics that I used that led him to believe I wasn't really interested in finding out what the truth was. I just wanted to win. Um, I don't know what those are. I, you know, he said he would uh, send me a message with what those are. And I said, I'd love to hear them as long as I had, as long as you would let hear me out and ex- in, give me an opportunity to explain why I did what I did. Uh, I haven't seen that email yet. So I really don't know what it is that he's referring to. I, I suppose, I mean, take for example, the discussion on, uh, on the death in Hades being thrown into the lake of fire and the harlot being tormented in fire. Um, I asked him, what happens to them? And he said they'd be no more. And then he tried to go on and I stopped him and moved on. Maybe that's the kind of thing. Uh, you know, maybe he had more to say and I didn't let him. Um, and you know, maybe that was my fault. I mean, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but it seemed to me <laughs> that I had just proved my point and it really is my time to ask questions. And so, um, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Um, well, so the question that I guess for either of you before we get into some specifics is have, have either of you uh, weakened your confidence in, in annihilationism or conditional immortality as a result of either of these debates? Let's start with you, Joey. Uh, it definitely hasn't been weakened. Um, in fact, in some ways, I, I feel a little strengthened. Um, certain uh, forum debates we've had since then, for example, forced me to answer questions about Revelation 2010, for example, that I hadn't really – even thought about. Yeah. So in some ways, it, my biblical stance has actually been strengthened. I think he there are, have been some more philosophical points, some points about things that I think real people will be concerned with that I am trying at the moment to uh, find a good answer for. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. We, we do definitely need to have answers prepared for the questions that people ask, even if we may not think that a lot of those are good questions, and, and a lot of them are. But anyway, what about you, Ronnie? Are, are you at all are you at all any less confident in your in your position? Well, no. I mean, like we said, I, I don't think either Church of Fan or Hiram were were all that prepared. And so, um, I, I think for a, a, any of us, or maybe any seasoned conditionalists, they didn't really hear anything in those debates that they haven't heard before that would lead them to question anything. So, I mean, not only was I not left wondering that, oh, maybe I'm wrong, but I honestly can't – it would seem like a stretch to me that any honest traditionalist would listen to either of those debates and conclude that you know, the arguments for traditionalism came out on top, you know, regardless of who was nervous or who was more eloquent or who was more confident and so forth. Just actually looking at the arguments, I, I can't think that any traditionalist would say yes. Traditionalism came out on top in those debates. You know, maybe there's some good arguments elsewhere, but but they didn't come up in the debates. It, it's funny because uh, one person that has said just that, if I recall correctly, was uh, was my friend Michael Burgos, who said in a uh, uh, in one of our mutual friends on Facebook's page that he thought that your case against Hurt and Fan was pretty poor, um, which I was kind of surprised because I I had I've heard from traditionalists and people on the fence. Um, 
that that our arguments were very strong and um and, and they were you know traditionalists that I've talked to have not been convinced as a result of our debates but they have become convinced that this is not a case as is so often perceived to be true uh, it's not a case based solely on an emotional response to an uh, eternal torment it's we're not we're not simply um, trying to find a way to reinterpret the scripture to make hell more palatable you know um, and I appreciate that traditionalists even if they aren't convinced realize hey there's a there's a more powerful biblical case here than, than I've been led to believe, you know? So I think that's cool. Um, I do want to put you both on a spot on the spot. I, I just thought of this and I want you to be honest. Um, you guys both know that there's a reasonable chance that I might have an opportunity to appear on unbelievable with Justin Brierley to defend, uh, annihilationism. Do you think that, do you think, are, are you confident that I can present the case well, or do you think maybe it would be unwise for somebody that's so unseasoned as, as I am to go on that show? What do you guys think? Ronnie, you first. I think that um, well, you know, to to be successful in a debate, you need both the the knowledge, but you also have to be a good debater. I, I do think you are a good debater, and uh, you're you're quick on your feet. I don't think you get flustered easily. Which, for instance, I thought I I think I get flustered easily if someone hits me with something that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Um, and I also think you have a, a good grasp of of I mean all the issues. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, and obviously I'm biased because I'm a conditionalist, but um, I, I've read what most of the quote-unquote big names of traditionalism have had to say. I, I don't believe that they have anything to offer that you wouldn't be prepared for, or that you could be pre prepared for given a little bit more you know, time to prepare. Sure. I heard you know, Christopher Morgan, he was interviewed on, on the Stanford Reason radio show with Greg Kogel. Um, was interviewed, I was appalled by a lot of the things he said. I just thought they were really bad, very poor quality arguments. And he's like the guy. Him and and uh, Mark Peterson are the two guys that you go to to defend traditionalism. So I, I think you do fine. Well, good. I appreciate that. And what about what about you, Joey? I certainly second everything Ronnie said. I mean, you have the knowledge. You're much better you know, thinking quickly than, than I, I am so uh yeah i think you'd definitely be a good um person to do it i mean i mean i mean there are a lot of big names in annihilationism now but you are definitely you know no matter how big the field is you do a fine job so i'd say go for it i appreciate that i i meant the question sincerely you know because i uh I'll be honest. I'm I'm as nervous as I was to debate on my own personal podcast with maybe 300 regular listeners or so. The prospect of being on Unbelievable is terrifying, and you know I didn't want if there were any annihilationists. In fact, I'll put this to you who are listening: if there are any of you annihilationists who think that it it would be a bad idea for me to appear on a show like that to represent this position that I've only held for a very brief period of time. Uh, let me know, and and uh, and you know maybe I can tell Justin. Never mind. Maybe you should find somebody better than me. But uh, anyway, I, I appreciate what you guys had to say. Let's let's go ahead and, and dive right into some specifics, Ronnie. When when we talked about this the other day, and we were talking about some of the things we wanted to address, um, one of your concerns was it seemed as though in your debate, and I think this is true of mine as well. Um, the, the passages that, that we have pointed to in support of our position are just sort of dismissed away without even any serious exegesis on the grounds that, you know, they're just symbolic of eternal torment or something like that. Um, what do you, what did you want to, you know, talk about in regards to that? Oh, gee, I mean, there's so much that can be said about that. Um, part of it, I think, came from 
from the lack of preparedness, as we were saying. Um, if you you know if you haven't really studied a passage and, and you're in a debate, I mean, what else can you say then? Well, it must mean something else because um, you're not going to sit there and study and do the exegesis on the spot. Uh, so that's part of it. I don't think Turk and Fan and Hiram's answers are necessarily typical of what you see, um, at least in in you know traditionalist literature. Um, you know, in traditionalist literature, they will try to say, "Oh, these words for destroy actually have, you know, a certain lexical breadth." Breadth? Breadth? How do you say that? <laughs> I think <laughs> it's breadth. You cut that out. Yeah, but um, and so they'll say, "So, you know, in these certain contexts, you know, destroy must or you know can actually mean ruin or something along those lines." Turret and fan in Heinrich's responses. I thought it was a lot more simplistic. They just said, well, it just must be, um, you know, it must be figurative or something like mm-hmm. that. But they never really justified it from the context why it must be figurative. You know, they would always appeal to some other passage. How do you know it's figurative? Well, because these other passages somewhere else say that the torment will last forever. So that's how we know that these have to be figurative. But they didn't even try, uh, in, in most cases, to do any sort of meaningful interpretation of the actual text. Right. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, and I'm going to turn to you, Joey, for this. Um, you guys together uh, have sort of stumbled on what seems to be a pretty glaring inconsistency because, uh, you know, speaking of the symbolism of, of – uh, the alleged symbolism of the passages that we've talked about, um, you know, one of the things that came up in my debate with Hiram and, and in the post-debate conversations was uh, it was – we were challenged that uh, – we were told that eternal torment in the symbolism of Revelation couldn't possibly symbolize, couldn't possibly be symbolic of death because they're quote you know opposite. Uh, the symbolism is opposite from that which we're alleging to be the reality. But but what do you what is the inconsistency that you think we've kind of stumbled upon there, Joey? Well, um, I'm glad you asked that, Chris. You know, our, <laughs> one of our main points in Revelation 20:10 because it is the one verse that does refer to. Uh, certain beings being, quote, tormented day and night forever and ever. Our general point is that that they are, in John's vision, shown to be tormented day and night forever and ever. But like everything else, or not everything in Revelation, a lot of things in John's vision, it's symbolic for something in real life. Hmm. We're saying that the eternal torment represents the destruction in real life of the things represented by the things that are thrown into like a fire. Mm. And um, while at first that does sound like a very stretched uh, interpretation, I grant that, what the inconsistency we've noticed is that occurred you know, just to me recently and to Ronnie as well, a lot of passages you know, that were spoken of before use destruction to symbolize or sometimes just flat out describe the fate of the lost. You have in the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13 where the tears the weeds are burned up in a raging fire and then jesus even says just as weeds are burned in a fire so too will be uh you know the loss at the end paraphrasing there you have you know second peter 2 6 where he says the uh, destruction of sodom and gomorrah literally when god reduces them to ashes that was him making an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly right we have absolute destruction and fire and burning to ashes and in other places things like death and corpses these are all said to represent the fate of the lost so throughout the bible these absolute destruction death all these things are meant to represent eternal torment but eternal torment in one passage can't represent those things in (laughs) real life 
Yeah. Yeah, that definitely – I had never thought about that until I, I heard you guys say it, and I was like, wow, that's that's really true. I mean to just put it very simply to paraphrase what you said, they're suggesting that eternal torment can't be symbolic of the kind of utter destruction that we insist is the case. And yet at the same time, they're willing to say that it, utter destruction in the sense that we've argued to be the case can be and is in fact symbolic of eternal torment. It just seems to be terribly inconsistent to me and as James White, uh, you know, whom I'm a fan of, has often said, inconsistency is a sign of a failed argument. And I definitely think that's uh, the case here. But Ronnie, one, one question I do have for you um, that I didn't get a response to you. I had emailed you about this. You had mentioned in one of those threads on Facebook that your interp- interpretation of Revelation 20 is at least a little bit different than I think what I've argued for. Do you want to explain that at all? Uh, yeah, sure. So my own view, and uh, this is, maybe I'll call this a tentative view for now. Uh, I may change it, but it's the view I've held for, for a little while is that the vision of you know these weird looking hybrid beasts and of a dragon being tormented um, in a lake of fire um, that that is meant to symbolize to the reader just a, a terrible fate uh, that it doesn't necessarily symbolize specifically you know something like everlasting or irreversible destruction um, in other words you know maybe if I could put it this way I don't know if let's say, the, the original readers of the book of Revelation, the original recipients of that letters, were expected to understand, oh, oh that by torment forever and ever, it actually means that they will be destroyed forever and ever. Um, I think it's a little bit more of a general point, that they will be harshly judged, you know, whatever those things are, right, or whatever those things represent, you know, whether it be kingdoms or some other, other corporate entity, uh, will just face a fear, fearsome, fearful, you know, and harsh judgment by God. Um, okay. So that's, you know, I, I don't necessarily go as far as, you know, as to say that I know that that is, you know, that imagery of torment must symbolize everlasting destruction. Sure. Now, I do believe that the, you know, I do believe that the judgment will be everlasting destruction. I just don't necessarily think that that's what's necessarily trying to be communicated there. So I think I said necessarily, you know, like six times there, but <laughs> I think you get my point. I think it was necessary. Uh, I think it was necessarily necessary. That's absolutely true. But, you know, I, I will say, and obviously I don't want to debate you on a topic, and, and I think we're, you know, very close to the same interpretation in any way. But I, I do think it's interesting that John specifically includes the uh, uh, death and Hades being thrown into the fire. I mean, certainly certainly there's no possible harsh judgment that death and Hades could face apart from becoming no more, right? Oh, I, I agree. So I, I try to make a distinction between... Because you actually have two things in the vision. First of all, you have things being thrown into a lake. Uh, but then in addition to that, in addition to that for um, you know those three entities we mentioned, you have this extra statement of torment going on forever and ever. Now, I do think that the action of throwing something into a lake of fire, I actually do think that that does symbolize uh, complete destruction. The specific uh, question is: the specific question is, what do the words "tormented in at forever and ever" what do those symbolize, or what I do see. those try to get at? Yeah, because I, I do think that John actually explicitly interprets the lake of fire later on as the second death, and maybe we could talk about that later. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I didn't want to go too far off on a tangent, and, and obviously we're going to be talking about that passage in a little bit, but uh, it, it did. I was reminded of the fact that we have a slightly different take there. Um, but in any case, uh, let's move on. The next thing that I think we talked about 
wanting to talk about was uh, was Isaiah 66 and, and how this has come up in the debates. Because this is one of the first things that got me rethinking my position on hell um, was – you know, one of the first passages that I would go to and that I heard other people go to was the passage in in um, in Matthew, I think it is, or maybe it's Mark, where where Jesus simply quotes the language language of this passage, saying that's what's going to happen, um, that their worm would not die and the fire would not be quenched. And then when I <laughs> discovered what is being described in the passage that's being quoted there, I was quite surprised to find out that it didn't seem to fit what I was arguing from it. Uh, Joey, what, what, just, just introduce us to this issue of Isaiah 66 and how it's typically used. Uh, how do you find how do you find that this comes up in the discussion? And, and, and do you think that do you think that when people bring it up, they're aware of the context, the passage where it's cited by Jesus anyway? Do you think that people are aware of just what it is that Jesus is quoting from? Uh, have, the, have do you think people have done the research? I mean, what, what do you think is going on here? Uh, well, the pa- you know, the passage is uh, Mark nine forty nine. I know just because it comes up in virtually every discussion about hell, right? And uh, it's understandable because in it, Jesus you know refers to hell, and then he says it's where you know their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. People, al- there are basically two ways that it pops up. One is the more simple way: people see the passage, not understanding anything about the background where it comes from. And they say, okay, the worm doesn't die, so it's alive forever eating the people. The <laughs> fire's not quenched, which even though quench means to extinguish, not to die out, they still assume means burns forever. So they just take that as simply saying, oh, well, he's saying the fire burns forever and the worms are always eating people. Now, the more some people do have some knowledge of the background. They know that it's a quote from Isaiah 66. Obviously, you know, that came up in the debate um, and in some traditionalist literature. Isaiah 66 has the same, you know, words, obviously, because Jesus is quoting it. But uh, let me pull up the exact passage here. Uh, For some context, you know, in a nutshell, this describes sort of at the end of the world, the end of time, God comes, he comes to reward the, the saints, and he has this mass slaughter of everyone else. Um, It's described in verses 15 and 16. Uh, I'm reading for the NASB. NASB here. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. And it goes down a few passages, describes specific kingdoms. The very last verse of the book of Isaiah goes, Then they, being the righteous, shall go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. So what we see here, and is explicitly said, you know, it's they're looking at the corpses of people who were slain by God, and for these people, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Right, and, and so it's just sort of without looking into that context, people quote the the passage from from Jesus and say that you know clearly they're they're conscious people consciously in pain being eaten up in fact i think that uh, that turretin fan explicitly said referring to this passage that you have people in horrible pain as worms eat them up or, or, or something like that uh it's quite a different picture when you actually go and look at the context and you know i can understand just looking at the language that a fire not being quenched kind of sounds like a fire that's burning people in it forever but you know just on the surface of it the word quench doesn't mean to die out first of all and second of all it strikes me that people haven't gone to the very first chapter of this book which ends with uh, a strong man and his work being burned together by a fire for which there will be none to quench Uh, it, it even says that they will be um 
they'll be like an oak whose leaf fades away and a garden that dies because it's it's it doesn't have anybody to water it. So I mean, just this this language of fire not uh, being quenched, just on the surface of it, and and when you do more research, it doesn't seem to really support the contention. But but obviously, one of the things that came up in my debate and that often comes up is that we're argue, it's argued that we're sort of. Uh, we're treating this as if it's literal and we're not letting this, the, the typology, um, be treated the way that typology probably ought to be treated. Ronnie, when, when, when somebody like Hiram, uh, says during the debate and afterwards that we're flattening out typology, that, uh, you know, what is your response to that? First of all, can you explain what you think Hiram means when he says we're flattening out this typology in, in some sort of inappropriate way? Yeah, what I think he means, and he, he seems to use that expression alongside of, you know, conflating type and anti-type. I think he's getting at the same thing that, um, I guess what we're doing is we're reading, uh, something in the Old Testament, which he thinks is merely a type of something in the future. And in some cases it may be a type of something, you know, something to come. Um, I guess what he's saying is that we are not understanding that the type could have a fuller sort of fulfillment in the future. So, you know, with Isaiah, for instance, yes, whereas literally it may just depict corpses, well, that's just the type. And what we don't understand, what we're not willing to accept, I guess, is that when this has a fuller fulfillment in the future, well, obviously it has to be more than mere corpses. See, I, I I think that's what he's getting at. Now, you know whether or not that that's a good argument. Uh, you know, I'll let you and Joey discuss that. But I'm I'm pretty sure that's what he's trying to say. Well, I think that you know in the post debate conversation, what he basically he tried to argue between he tried to contrast quantitative and qualitative application of of this typology. And what he'll argue, and he'll, he turns to Isaiah 65, which we'll talk about in a second, um, but what he tries to argue is that when it comes to the fate of the righteous or the saved, we take, we take the language in, in Isaiah 65, which we'll get to in a second, and, and treat it quantitatively in terms of the length of time the righteous will be alive, but also qualitatively uh, describing the kind of life that they that they will have, but that but but he argues that when we look at Isaiah 66 and the corpses, we're we're only talking about um, quantity. That we're only saying we're only allowing the typology to depict the the temporal end of the wicked, and we're not letting it um, to typify uh, something qualitative about the end of the wicked. Joey, do you do you think that that's the case? Do you think that that we don't allow this to have a a uh, greater fulfillment in terms of the quality of the fate of the wicked? Well, we certainly do allow it to have a greater fulfillment. And it, it's not even though we're saying that it's impossible that these things can represent eternal torment. We're just making the point that what they do represent is, you know, a lot more like the, what they are. In terms of qualitative, it's not the same thing. I mean, Grant, okay, in some, this kind of gets into your view of uh, dualism versus physicalism for one part, because you know, the dualist would say that when you're killed, you don't, you know, sort of, uh, you don't lack consciousness or cease to exist in any practical way, the way that we're saying the wicked will in the end. Whereas the physicalist would say that, yeah, what they experience is the same. Either way, once it's over, they're not experiencing anything. Hmm. So that, in some ways, is dependent on one's view there. Um, but as far as the qualitative aspect, I mean, Yes, they're very, what we're saying is they're essentially the same qualitatively, at least in the sense that 
the the lost will f- have the same kind of feeling as a corpse will, which is nothing. But I don't think that's necessarily a wrong thing because it's. I don't understand why qualitatively there has to be a difference between the two. If the quality is essentially the same, what is the problem? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I don't think it's. I've seen it often argued that that the standard application of typology and progressive revelation demands that the uh, fulfillment be, you know, drastically greater and different than than the type. But I, I certainly don't think that that is necessarily the case. Um, I think that's an assumption on many people's part. But but I do want to point out that I do think that there's something more than mere corpses in in what we think is the uh, the fulfillment of of the type. I mean, um, absolutely. Yeah, for one thing, I don't know that I, I don't take this literally to say that there will be a tremendous pile of corpses that the righteous go out and look on from new moon to new moon or from Sabbath to Sabbath. Uh, I, I think that they're going to be, you know, destroyed <laughs> and, and perhaps burnt to ashes literally or, or what have you. So, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, and then, of course, there's the fact that um, this passage says nothing about um, the, uh, the the judgment, you know, and the kind of sh- uh, guilt that the wicked are going to face when, when they're judged, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know. It just, it seems to me an assumption on Hiram's part that we are treating this only in a, in a quantitative aspect uh, and not a qualitative one, not to mention the assumption that there must be a qualitative element to the typology. But, but I, but I did mention Isaiah 65 um, and you know, this came up in the debate and I was a little taken aback. I wasn't prepared for this and I think I did get a little flustered. Um, but in Isaiah 65, it does say, uh, and I'm trying to find the specific Verse. It's oh, it's so in nineteen. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of one hundred will be thought accursed. So, uh, you know, Ronnie, when when this says when when Isaiah says the youth will die at the age of one hundred, um. Is, are we somehow treating this passage differently from the very next chapter in, in that we're taking Isaiah 66 kind of literalistically or something to speak of corpses, but here we're, we obviously know, we obviously don't think the youth will die at the age of 100 in, in, in the new heavens and new earth, do we? Uh, you know, in general, no. I mean, some people might believe that. Um, I don't know, but, you know, I, I think the way we ultimately decide you know, to interpret Isaiah 65, ultimately it's irrelevant to this discussion. I, I, you know, I had mentioned this before. I was actually just speaking with Joey about this passage even before your debate, just saying how it's a fascinating passage. Um, but it's a fascinating passage for, you know, for any Christian. We ha- we had to look at this passage and say, well, what exactly is Isaiah getting at there? Um, but we can't say that just because we don't understand. Isaiah 65 literally, um, that we can therefore interpret Isaiah 66 however we want. Sure, yeah. You know, Isaiah 66 is a scene of slaughter, death, destruction, and consumption. Um, if the traditionalist wants to maintain that Isaiah 66 actually teaches or foreshadows, you know, everlasting torment, well, he has to present an argument to that effect. Mm. He can't just say, well, we don't take Isaiah 65 Absolutely, literally, therefore, Isaiah 66 teaches everlasting torment. Well, that obviously doesn't follow. What is the argument that Isaiah 66 should be taken as either 
explicitly teaching torment. And by the way, some traditionalists actually say that. Uh, you know, Christopher Morgan says that Isaiah 66 literally just teaches itself everlasting torment. Or if the people want to say that it's a type of torment, well, they have to show us why they think that. True. You know, where where in Mark 9 is that indicated? Where do, where does Jesus show that he's reinterpreting um, or interpreting Isaiah 66 to mean something more than just the immediate context? Sure. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up um, because uh, I had emailed um, Edward Fudge after the debate. And, and I mentioned, I, you know, it, when I debated Hiram, I asked him a couple of times, is there any place where New Testament authors – um, s- cite Old Testament passages and expand on them in such a way as would um, support, uh, w- which would give us reason to, to interpret those in a broader way than, than the original text. And he couldn't come up with any. And I can't find the email that Edward Fudge had sent me at the moment. But, you know, Edward, Edward Fudge pointed to several places in the New Testament where Old Testament uh, citations are made but expanded upon. In the absence of that, when it comes to Isaiah 66, I don't see any justification for assuming, as Hiram seems to, um, that it must be um, typological of eternal torment. And one thing that I wanted to point out was actually the more I read Isaiah 65 in contrast with Isaiah 66, the more I, I think that it actually supports our interpretation. Because you, you asked a good question, Ronnie. You, you asked, or, or something along these lines, you asked, what is, what is Isaiah intending to communicate in this passage in Isaiah 65? And I think it's quite simple. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. This is contrasting what right now are short lives with a very long life. That seems to be, to, to me, to be a quite obvious interpretation of the, uh, of this passage. But, but like you pointed out, um, or maybe it was Joey, uh, Isaiah 66 is the exact opposite. It's, it's a scene of destruction and consumption. It, it's not long lives. It's lives cut short forever. So I, I do think that uh, we're interpreting these quite consistently. Do any of you have any more thoughts on Isaiah 66 before we move on? Yeah, one thing I would add is, like, I think one of the arguments that's made, and it's sort of a straw man against this, is that we're taking Isaiah 66 literally, but we're not. Ta- I mean, we're not taking it as though Jesus is saying literally the same thing. We, in fact, are using it typologically. You know, the idea being that mass slaughter is a type of what's going to happen at the end of time. It's just when we determine what the antitype is, we figure since there's nothing expanding upon it that maybe the antitype is like the type. That if it's a mass slaughter on Earth, the antitype would be, you know, the heavenly equivalent, the just utter destruction of the lost. That whereas Isaiah points to death, which, you know, is not final and ultimate annihilation where, you know, everybody will be raised again. It's temporary, but it renders one dead. In the case of uh, what will happen in hell, it, it's not temporary. It's permanent. It's, it's everything that Isaiah pictures, but on an eternal heavenly scale. So it's not even that we're not looking at it typologically. It's just we don't find the same type as the traditionalist does. Yeah, well, the same antitype. Yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. antitype, yes. No, and, and it's interesting. You, 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 I, I, like, I like what you said, that, that the antitype is in – in our view, very similar to the type, because it moves us right into the next passage that we had said we were going to talk about, which is Jude 7. Um, you know, Turton Fan argued in his opening that um, because Sodom and Gomorrah are said to have been punished with eternal fire, and yet Sodom and Gomorrah are still not burning, that this must be a foretaste of hell. But but the reason, but I actually argued from Jude 7 that there's good reason 
in this passage to say that the anti-type will be very similar to the type in the way that we've argued. Um, Jude uses a very particular couple of words here when he says that Sodom and Gomorrah are exhibited. Uh, it's a word in the Greek which means laid out in plain sight. And he uses the word digma, for example, which uh, which means a specimen of something. If if uh, I remember um, I had prepared in the rebuttal, uh, if, if, if that word came up, I had, re- I had prepared a, a citation from Isocrates who said, who talked about producing a sample of each kind of fruit. And I had this whole argument where I said that if you were asked to produce a sample of a berry, would you produce a fruit? I mean, sorry, uh, produce an apple? Well, no, you'd produce a kind of berry. You know, and, and so the point is, Jude's language says that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are a specimen of the punishment of eternal fire. Now, that tells me that whatever typology, whatever difference between type and anti-type, um, there is a very close similarity you know between between the two and this laid out in plain sight thing because the eternal because because the torment presumed by dualists of the sodom the, the inhabitants of sodom and gomorrah is recorded nowhere in scripture um the only thing that could be the example that he's talking about is in fact the, the record of their destruction in uh genesis uh you know joey do, do you did, did you get the impression that or do you get the impression that this passage is ever seriously dealt with by traditionalists I'd say perhaps it's seriously dealt with, but in the end, not sufficiently. Uh, I think one thing they bring up is the fact that it speaks of them, you know, undergoing punishment. It's in a, it's a present participle, and they're saying it indicates ongoing action. So it's not speaking of the past; it's speaking of you know what's currently happening. But there's a number of problems with that. First and foremost, if they're in eternal fire now, then does that mean that they're already in, you know, the eternal fire that they're going to be thrown into later? That the eternal fire that Hades, the abode of the dead, will be thrown into in the future? Like, just that's one thing from a systematic theology standpoint. That can't be. Sure. Uh, well, and it's something that we do in English too. I mean, uh, I might say that my favorite hockey team moved to, into the Stanley Cup Finals by winning. Game seven of the semifinals. You know, that by using the word winning in the present tense, I'm not saying that they're winning that game right now, you know. And, and there's a biblical precedence for this as well. This present participle, uh, I think is what it's called. In Ephesians 2.15, it says, Jesus is said to have made the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And yet, I don't get the impression that that passage is intended to communicate that he's in the process of establishing peace, at least not in that particular passage. He's saying, in fact, he's quite the contrary. He says he has made the two into one new man. So I don't think that that present use of the word undergoing serves as any challenge to our view. Yeah, it's, there's nothing in it that's, you know, that isn't, there's nothing insurmountable about the argument by at any stretch. But, but this does bring up an issue of uh, an assumption that I think traditionalists often make, you know, speaking of eternal fire. Um, Turretin fan, I think, very clearly made this assumption in his argument that the phrase eternal fire um, that, the, 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 that in that phrase, the word eternal describes the length of the uh, suffering that is inflicted by the fire. Uh, do you guys get the impression, Ronnie, turning back to you, do, do you find that it's oftentimes assumed that when a fire is described as, as eternal, therefore whatever is being consumed by it must be being consumed for eternity? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a very common argument. It's usually presented as kind of a rhetorical question. It's like, well, why would it be called eternal fire if you know, the people end up being consumed? Or something like that. Well, so how how would you answer saying, that question? Yeah, and that's that's a fair question. Um, so, but again, and I tried to bring this up in my, I believe I said this in my debate with Turdefan. I said that's not just a question for, you know, me. That's not just a question for conditionalists. That's a question for everybody, because Jude seven 
pretty clearly, and I think you've, you guys have established that, refers to the fire that actually destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and it calls that fire eternal fire. So all Christians who take the scripture seriously should be asking, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> How was the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah eternal? Like, why is that called eternal fire? Because in that case, case it didn't, it clearly didn't, you know, torment forever. Actually, in that case, it clearly didn't even burn forever. Yeah. And so this is an open question for everyone. You know, in the debate, my answer to that was, I guess, twofold. One, it was eternal in its effects and that Sodom and Gomorrah were, you know, never rebuilt. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this is something that Jonathan Edwards, he makes the exact same point. I'm not saying that because he said it, it's correct, but I mean, here you have a, you know, traditionalist, you know, the ultimate traditionalist who agrees on this point. He says, uh, yeah, I'm trying to find it real quick. He says, you know, that the fire of hell is called eternal fire in the same sense that the external fire which consumed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is called eternal fire in Jude 7 because it utterly consumed those cities. That they might never be built, <laughs> that they might never be built more. Mm. Um, and so, why is it called eternal fire? Because it completely destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah forever. Um, the other thing I said, and, and this is fairly speculative, right? We're all speculating. Why is this called eternal fire? The other right. answer is that um, it seems to be, when you look at biblical descriptions of God, it seems to be a extension of God's fire. Right, God is described as a consuming fire. He's pictured as someone who is surrounded by smoke and by fire. And so you have this eternal fire, which is God's fire, you know, and he sends that fire down occasionally to destroy things, but that's God's eternal fire. It's eternal in in a real sense, in the sense that it's always been burning and always will be burning. Um, Now, Again, that's, you know, I'm kind of reading between the lines there. Does any passage say exactly what I just said? No, but I, I think it's imminently reasonable. Yeah, I think so as well. But there are a couple of things that we need to address from this passage that, that I did poorly with, at least. Well, yeah, I did do poorly in, in the debate. And, and, Joey, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. When, when the discussion came out, came up both during the debate and afterwards about what death means, this, this group of people in Jude 7 are described, in the, who appear to be alive right now, um, are said to have perished in the rebellion of Korah in verse 11 and verse uh, 13, I think it is, or verse 12 calls them doubly dead or twice dead. Um, how do we, if death is, and we're going to be talking about death a little bit more, a little bit later in this conversation, assuming we don't, uh, you know, run out of time, <laughs> but because we're going so long. But, but you know, if we think that dead, at least in um, the kind of death we think is inflicted by the second death, uh, if we think it means what we think it means, how can these people who are living be called right now twice dead and, and said to have perished? How do we address that kind of thing, Joey? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, one thing I've noticed with these kind of passages, um, you know, they're referring to the you know, the lost as being dead, as already perished. Well, the Bible on several occasions will take descriptions of things to come and will use you know the present tense describing them as if they're already here. Um, one example that you know, comes to mind immediately is Romans 8.10, where Paul, he's writing to a bunch of saved believers. He tells them that, um, he says that their bodies are dead, uh, but their spirits are alive through righteousness. Now, their bodies aren't dead. Obviously, he's speaking, he's not speaking to disembodied corpses. Paul is speaking to 
live people. Their bodies aren't dead. They will be dead. They're as good as dead. They're mortal, and therefore they're going to die. So he describes, you know, he says to them that they are dead. Uh, we see this in other cases. Uh, again, in Romans 8. Uh, let see if I can pull up the exact passage here. I want to say 8.30, but um, Paul's listing off, you know, what God has done, you know, for those who have been saved. He's, you know, he lists off this list, you know, they've been justified and so forth. He ultimately says, and if so, then he has glorified us. Now, we're not yeah. glorified presently, at least not in the <laughs> way that we're going to be, especially since he already said our bodies are dead. So that's a that's something in the future, but Paul speaks of it as current. Or Second uh, Timothy first, Second uh, Timothy Second Timothy one ten, uh, how Jesus abolished death. Like death hasn't been abolished. People are still dying spiritually. People are still dying physically. Like in no way can we say that death is gone or rendered powerless in any sense. But by dying on the cross, Jesus kind of put that final. You know, I've heard it described as D-Day in World War II. He's made the demise of death, you know, inevitable. Like, it's just a matter of, it's guaranteed to happen, so it's described in current language. Okay, but what does it mean that they're doubly dead or twice dead? What do you think that that's a reference to? You know, I'm not 100% sure of what to make of that Jude passage, but interestingly, Leon Morris, um, who was definitely not a conditionalist, in an essay on death, he made the case that when it speaks of them, he says that they're currently twice dead. He was making the argument that it's speaking both to them being to their physical death as well as their you know spiritual death, whatever that means, and we'll get to that soon. But he's he makes explicitly clear that neither of those have happened yet. So that's he makes the case that that's just another case of the Bible describing what's going to happen to them. Is that the is that the very essay that Hiram cited in one of those Facebook threads? Yes, it is. I believe it's called "The Wages of Sin" or something to that effect. Okay, but but Ronnie, if you have any thoughts on that, feel free to share them. But I, I wanted to turn to you because the other thing that I think we need to address in this passage that hasn't been talked about, but uh, if if not, well, maybe if, if briefly in my debate was this issue of the black darkness that's been reserved forever pe- for you know for for these people. If we think that they're going to be destroyed, in what sense are is there black darkness forever reserved for them? Uh, yeah, that that's a great question. Um, I, I will mention the the twice dead citation I, I actually think that's a lot simpler than than some people think uh, twice dead is actually a reference to the trees uh, that are mentioned it's, it's some description of a tree and so if you read the whole passage it's talking about uh, I guess false prophets or uh, whoever these people are it says that they're hidden reefs at your love feast so they're describing them as I guess you know reefs uh, under the ocean that you know are hidden it says they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds. And then it says fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, uh, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. I mean, someone could say, well, what does it mean when it says that they're waterless clouds? What does it mean by saying that the people are waterless? <laughs> or what does it, you know, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam? What does it mean when they say that the people have foam? Well, <laughs> that's not what it's saying. These are all images, waves that cast up foam. And one of the images is trees that are twice dead and uprooted. Now, that's an interesting question. What does it mean to say a tree is twice dead? And there's been various uh, interpretations of that. You know, interestingly enough, <laughs> I did a search and I got a article written by our friend Turretin fan, and so maybe you could actually link to it. 
and he actually discusses this issue of being twice dead. Um, he, he tries to exegete the passage. But it's not saying that people are twice dead. It says that these trees that people are being compared to are twice dead and uprooted, and they're fruitless. What exactly that means, I think, is up for debate. As for your other question was about eternal darkness being reserved. Um, I think this is just an expression of of death. Uh, what is it like to be dead? And obviously it's impossible to imagine. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that death really is um, complete lifelessness, no consciousness. Well, how could you describe that? Hmm. <laughs> Traditionally, many people have described it as a type of darkness. Yeah, I mean, literally speaking, that's incorrect, right? Death is utter unconsciousness. Well, there would be nothingness. There wouldn't even be darkness. But it makes sense to describe it as darkness. And as a matter of fact, um, if you look at the book of Job, chapter 3, that's exactly how Job describes what it would be like if, if he either were never born or if he died in the womb or was never conceived. He just, right, and maybe someone wants to expand on that. I don't have the passage up in front of me. No, but you're definitely right. He, he, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and pull that passage up. I had actually prepared to discuss that because of that, um, because I thought that this might come up. It didn't come up in quite the way I had anticipated. But yeah, he says, um, uh, let's see here. This is obviously another thing where I'm going to have to edit a little bit. But oh, so in verse, in verse four, uh, may that day be darkness, the, the day in which it was said a boy is conceived, speaking of himself. May that be, day be darkness. Let the day perish on which I was to be born. Uh, let darkness and black gloom. I mean, that's nearly identical language that Job uses. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Now, obviously, he's not saying let it, let let that day exist forever in in darkness for eternity. No, he's saying he's saying let it never have happened. Let it not exist. You know, um, to be kind of to use language that I don't exactly um, agree with, but. So yeah, I just don't see this as being. Um, uh, I, I don't see this in any way, shape, or form being a challenge to our position. Um, moving on, and unless you guys do have any more thoughts in that passage, I wanted to talk briefly about Revelation 22. This this came up in the debate with uh, Turret and Fan. I had prepared a rebuttal for it in case it had come up in our discussion. Um, but but there's some interesting things that are said in in chapter 22 of Revelation. And, and Joey, maybe I'll turn to you next. Um, what is it that do can you explain what what the case that is sometimes made from verses ten and eleven and uh, fifteen of Revelation twenty two as a challenge to our position? Can you present that for us? Sure, a couple different things, uh, kind of all pulled into one there with eleven and fifteen. Um, eleven, for example, Church and Fan made the case that verse eleven, which reads, "Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and the one who is righteous still practice righteousness." And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. He and a few others here and there have made the case that that passage is indicating that in you know in the you know next age that sinners will still be around sinning because it's saying just let them keep sinning. Um, and then fifteen is it says outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons etc. Um, so it's indicating that they're outside of the kingdom of heaven, and the reasoning goes, well, if they're outside, then that means they're existent, which means they're not destroyed. And those are the two arguments kind of made from there. Okay, and then, you know, just sort of in a nutshell, I mean, there are several responses that I personally would make to this, and I might have an opportunity to give some of those, but how do you respond to that argument? Well, for verse 11, I, I mean, 
the path, the verse right before it, um, we have John saying, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Like he's no longer, it's clear that, like, it's totally clear. He's not looking at this kingdom. He's not having the vision at this point. He's, you know, kind of stepping back from it. And this is what, you know, um, the person, I believe this is supposed to be Jesus talking to him, was, you know, saying to him, it's like, you've seen all these things and everything you just wrote down, keep it open and show it to people, essentially. And then that's the context of where it then says, let the one who does wrong still be wrong. It's speaking to John about how to handle life from here on out. It's not at all referring to what's going to happen in the future kingdom. Sure. So it's, yeah. so it's not indicating that sinners are still around by any stretch. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but yeah, but what about verse 15 and the outside of the dogs and the sorcerers, etc.? There are a couple different ways one could go about this. Um, the, the first idea that's been brought up is that is just simply that the kingdom that we see, the new Jerusalem that comes out from heaven, is actually representative of the church. Um, I don't necessarily hold to that view, but if one did, and you know, there's some names that do, it would um, it would you know settle the argument right there. It's just saying that the church doesn't include any of these evil people. Okay. Uh, yeah. And for other views here, um, a couple things to be said. First off, uh, you know, again, this is to the point where, you know, the Lord is talking to John about it. It's not, he's not showing the vision anymore. So, uh, where's, where's I going with that? I'm sorry. Basically, yeah. oh, you have something? Well, no, yeah, I'll try and clean up where you're going, I think, with it, because, you know, the, the point is, I think that, uh, or, or the challenge is going to be this. It's going to be, okay, well, if he's, if he's not talking about the vision anymore, why does he say that these people are outside uh, the gates of the city, unable to enter into it, you know, and have the right to the tree of life? And, you know, as I explained to you guys on a Skype call uh, several weeks ago or whatever, this isn't the only place, if, if we're right, that speaks of the New Jerusalem uh, in the present tense. Um, you know, a passage where I've debated people about the um, physicalism or, or monism, uh, which obviously... Not all of us here are on the same page on that. Uh, but, but in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, uh, the author writes, You have come, present tense, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and a myriads of angels, to the general assembly, etc., etc., etc. Now, if the author of Hebrews can speak of the heavenly Jerusalem in the present tense, saying that Christians have come to it, then, then there's no reason why John can't be doing the same thing, uh, or, or at least the messenger that's talking to him, in Revelation 22. Um, but, but there's a more important point that, that I tried to make clear in my opening statement, which was that, um, to, to read, I mean, this is even, let's assume for a moment that this is still a vision. Um, it's still a vision. <laughs> and, and, and at least a, several of us, if not all three of us have already, uh, conceded that the imagery is of the eternal torment of the wicked, but it's just imagery meant to communicate something else. Um, so I, I, I would have no problem saying that in the imagery, the sinners are still being sinners and are outside the gates of the city. I mean, Ronnie, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? Uh, well, as far as verse 15 is concerned, I mean, or verse 14 and 15, I think the only way you could press that into being evidence for traditionalism is, again, to take it extremely literally and to take the, I guess, the ordering the apparent ordering events extremely literally <laughs> and saying something like, well, see, they were thrown in the lake of fire earlier and now this is the future and they're, they're not gone. They're still existing outside of the city. 
Which, again, I mean, that's the exact hermeneutic that we are disputing in the first place, to kind of repeat what you just said. Yeah, definitely. So I just, I don't see any, any challenge from this passage to our view. Um, and I was kind of taken aback that Turton fan was so insistent on it being such a challenge. But in, in any case, we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll move on. All right, well, that was part one of a more than three-hour-long conversation with Joey Deer and Ronnie Demler. Um, Join me for episodes 73 and 74 for parts two and three of our discussion. Uh, Until then, 